Welcome back to The Left Lens with Danny Haifong. I'm going to answer in this video the last question from students at Pomona College who a dear friend of mine introduced me to and who he said had questions about material that they have been reading on war and peace, imperialism, capitalism, racism, these deep questions that shape our society, that shape the development of political economy and which are so crucial now in this time of the pandemic. Many people are quarantining to try to keep themselves safe and to try to keep their societies safe. Uh, however, these questions and these issues are still shaping the ways not only that we respond to something like a pandemic, but also how uh, the societies are organized as a whole to either meet the needs of the people or to do the exact opposite, deprive people, oppress people, and exploit people. So let's get to this question. What president, if any, do you think has represented the largest shift in U.S. imperialist policy? I'm curious to know what president you think made the biggest steps toward increasing the United States' role as an imperialist power, and which tried to limit or step away from it, and why? This is a very interesting question, and I think it points to a deeper issue. That is... U.S. presidents are generally judged as individuals when, in fact, the historical force of history and the historical in the movement of history, the development of social relations of any given system, especially the imperialist system, do uh, reform themselves, do tend to change over the course of time as the system develops, as it becomes uh, more entangled in the global capitalist economy and the global world economy as a whole, as antagonisms start to develop where uh, people uh, just can't take it anymore and begin to resist and struggle. And that's what we've seen is over the course of U.S. imperialism's development, for example, we've also seen, on the other hand, a resistance movement all over the world also develop in conjunction with the externalities and the conditions of depravity that imperialism creates worldwide. We also see resistance right here in the United States, uh, social struggles and social movements uh, challenge things like state repression, mass incarceration, police brutality, white supremacy, uh, and also the capitalist exploitation that has sent workers into a spiral downward when it comes to their living standards and their conditions. So over the course of history, these antagonisms, these contradictions, the uh, unity of opposites, the forces that are ultimately bound together, but also diametrically opposed when we think about their interests, whether we're talking about workers and bosses, whether we're talking about black Americans and the largely white controlled state, whether we're talking about colonialism versus anti-colonial movements, whether we're talking about the forward motion of technology and the forward progress of technology, but in the hands of private corporations ultimately becomes a weapon against workers, a weapon against the people. There are so many contradictions that we could talk about. And I think looking at U.S. presidents as individuals uh, does not necessarily help us do that. However, U.S. presidents are also individuals. And so there is this 
struggle, right, in the larger society when we're talking about political economy and we're talking about these large systems that produce these social conditions. We're also talking about individuals who are actors in history and who do not necessarily always go along. However, because the U.S. is an imperialist system, because its superstructure, that is, its culture, its state, how it is governed, um, as well as all the other means of socially reproducing imperialism, because they're all largely in control of the same oligarchs, the capitalist interests, the capitalist class, which promotes and ultimately relies on imperialism, the monopolization and concentration of capital, the move towards finance capital, because all of that really does control the entire superstructure of the American state, Ultimately, there really hasn't been a president that goes against imperialism, so to speak. Uh, I was just doing some research for this and saw that Foreign Policy, a war hawk mainstream media journal, labeled FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, as the most anti-war president, president in U.S. history. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And, and a little bit about FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I also want to talk about this larger question of limiting versus forwarding U.S. imperialist policy um, as individual presidents. I would argue the opposite, right? Because I think that there are two uh, opposing forces when we think about Frederick, Frederick Delano Roosevelt, FDR. On the one hand, FDR was dealing with an economic crisis that... Uh, before maybe this pandemic had not been seen in the United States' history, right? A capitalist crisis that indeed affected the entire planet and had sent U.S. workers into such a downward trajectory economically that there had to be reforms instituted in order to get American workers, mostly white American workers, but American workers as a whole, uh, to uh, have some sort of social safety net to fall back on. However, that came only because there was a massive industrialization of the U.S. capitalist economy. And most of it was militarily focused. Most of it was actually geared toward building war armaments for the so-called allied powers, the United Kingdom, France, etc., with uh, Britain actually taking on a Lend-Lease program with the United States, which was basically a cash-for-weapons policy. So let's think about this a bit. The Lend-Lease policy and the United States' intervention in World War II, officially in 1941, marked a period of great militarism and military expansionism. Not because FDR said anything. This isn't about what he said because he was not a proponent of interventionist wars abroad, at least publicly. However, the way that the FDR administration dealt with World War II was essentially let the European powers, rivals, capitalist competitors, even if they are considered allies in the so-called democratic, bourgeois democratic sense, the European powers were ultimately left for many years to fight the Nazi regime on their own. And the Nazi regime of Germany 
was very formidable. An industrial power base had an industrialized industrial base, and it had an ideology that fueled it, its soldiers and that fueled its military industrial complex. And many corporations, even U.S. corporations, helped finance that military and helped finance that political regime. So the United States' economic interests, their oligarchs had a vested interest in allowing the European powers to get decimated to a certain extent. However, uh, when the Nazi regime seemed to be no longer a convenient foe, meaning that weakening the European powers was now going against the interests of the United States, that's when the United States and FDR decided to step in. There's also this question of the Soviet Union and socialism as a whole, because at this time, there was also a strong socialist bloc. The Soviet Union uh, was a powerhouse and was the primary target of the Nazi regime's uh, ultimate reasons for going to war on the world. It was actually the desire to invade the Soviet Union that motivated the Nazis and Hitler the most. So when the U.S. capitalists, the imperialists, saw that the Nazis were not going to defeat the Soviet Union, the Nazis had not only overplayed their hand when it came to their assault on Europe, but also had failed in the ultimate objective, which all the imperialists, including the fascists, agreed upon, which was destroy the Soviet Union. So FDR, on the one hand, uh, is considered this anti-war president because he didn't speak openly for U.S. military interventionism, but on the other hand, had laid the groundwork for a lot of the destruction that World War II caused. Not only did so many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, died before the U.S. decided to intervene, the United States had also, once it did intervene, uh, put into place a nasty and monumental uh, air campaign, the firebombing of Dresden, Germany, for example, killing hundreds of thousands of people, the firebombing of Japan, of cities in Japan, killing hundreds of thousands of people, and then we know that the two atomic bombs dropped, not only killed hundreds of thousands of people, but left people for decades and decades into today dealing with the health uh, and physical ramifications of that. So, in effect, uh, what the United States was doing during World War II was building a huge military machine, an empire, and then using World War II and the conflict that arose from it to come out as the number one imperial superpower. After Japan was decimated, Germany was decimated, and the European powers were decimated, the United States not only had the largest military industrial complex in the world, but also now had the economic leverage to overtake the European powers as well as Japan and Germany on the economic and imperial world stage. So would I call that an anti-war presidency? I don't think so. I think really presidents are products of the historical moment that they arise from. Because, you know, so many will want to talk about how, let's say, Dwight Eisenhower uh, warned us about the military industrial complex and that made him an anti-war presidency. But as president, Dwight Eisenhower was sending uh, more military personnel to Vietnam to aid the Fran French in their to aid the French in their colonial and imperial occupation there. Not only did he do that, but during the Korean War, before he was president, he was a key military official who 
oversaw the killing of millions of Koreans, two to three millions of Koreans, and the possible threat of a nuclear war with China. So Dwight Eisenhower was no anti-war president either, right? And I think, I, I think this question does come from 2016, the presidential election where we saw Donald Trump come out to the left of Hillary Clinton, a Democratic Party corporate candidate, and denounce regime change wars. We also see Tulsi Gabbard now uh, during the 2020 and 2016. She denounced regime change wars. However, it's really important to look at the political moment that we're in right now in the United States. Right now, the United States is a trillion-dollar military albatross. It its capitalist economy is actually being hindered by the trillions of dollars that is spent on military uh, arms and other expenditures. It is an empire, and this empire is crumbling. There is this competition around the world that the United States has mainly uh, participated in through military means that threatens to bring us to the brink of a third world war with Russia and China, one that could be nuclear in scope and a catastrophe for humanity and perhaps the last gasp for humanity. And all of that is very critical and scary. And this also comes at the heels of the occupation of Iraq in 2003, the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, wars that never really ended, that caused a lot of malaise amongst the population with U.S. imperial warfare. So all of that has understandably had the establishment and certain figures in the establishment like a Donald Trump, like a Tulsi Gabbard, thinking about the consequences, both in terms of public relations uh, with the empire, but also in terms of their own capitalist interests. I think about Donald Trump, who comes from a section of the capitalist class that despises Wall Street, at least on a personal and individual economic sense because Wall Street has been the force that has indebted many large so-called business owners like him into a debt trap. And that is something that a lot of capitalists like Donald Trump do not like. And so even though he is a billionaire himself and is rich and uh, ultimately serves Wall Street now as president, he does have his own individual misgivings about them. And so it's important to recognize these contradictions when it comes to the struggle of capital, the struggle within the capitalist and imperialist system, because it is a system driven by competition. But also the other side of that uh, contradiction is monopoly. And so we always have to be looking at how those two things are developing at the same time. And U.S. presidents fall within this historical, economic, and political uh, development model. They fall within this historical process. So when people say that FDR was the most anti-war president, it is a little foolish to me to think about it like that because FDR was a president amid a global crisis and a global war. And if we look at some of the groundwork that was laid after World War II by someone like FDR, we see that the tools for war, not only the huge military machine, the military industrial complex that developed out of World War II in the United States, but also the financial instruments created by the Bretton Woods Agreement that not only made the U.S. dollar the reserve currency of the world, but also created institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, etc., which 
have become instruments of war, instruments of sanctions, instruments of debt peonage for many former colonial countries, that financial warfare is another aspect of imperialism that often goes uh, unsaid, often is not spoken about as war, even though there's plenty of outright U.S. military aggression to speak about. Um, something like the Bretton Woods Agreement was largely a an act of war, financial warfare, where the U.S. used its finance capitalists and its ability to uh, create an alliance with the now weakened European powers to not only indebt them, because a lot of uh, the Bretton Woods Agreement was about using the dollar as reserve currency, but it also created an international financial system that benefited large banks and corporations headed in the United States. And that is an act of warfare. But this isn't the end of it or the whole story. There are so many presidents that we could have this debate about. It's really important to think about presidents within their historical context and within the political and economic context from which they were acting in which they were uh, ultimately thrusted onto the world stage to dictate their interests, the interests of the system as a whole. And uh, it's really important that we begin to uh, talk about imperialism and to talk about wars as much bigger than U.S. presidents. Even though U.S. presidents, when pressured, can do things that uh, are critical toward a peace movement. If right now people were willing to stand up to the Trump administration, to stand up to any administration about the endless wars that the U.S. wages abroad, there's a chance that that could have an effect. Without any of that, we've seen the Trump administration uh, wink and nod toward pulling troops out of Afghanistan and Syria, for example which should be capitalized upon and should be demanded as something that is desirable. And it sh and we shouldn't just uh, throw up our hands and say, well, the president is a servant of imperialism and thus we can't do anything. No, I don't believe in that. I believe that uh, even though presidents are a product of the historical moment and the larger uh, forces, which ultimately dictate what a, US, what a U.S. president will do within the imperialist state, it's also important to understand that these individuals are contradictory figures that can be pushed and pulled with limits, of course. Um, you know, there's so much that could be said here. We could go through all of the U.S. presidents. Another person that comes to mind is John F. Kennedy. Many folks wonder if John F. Kennedy, if he had lived, would he have... Um, would he, uh, would he have gone to war in Vietnam, for example, which ultimately killed uh, 3 million Vietnamese, uh, poisoned Vietnamese people uh, that the United States criminally invaded that country and has, still has ramifications today? Well, what I would say is that John F. Kennedy also had his imperialist misgivings. He himself uh, was the president of the United States during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was a complete and utter Cold War provocation with the Soviet Union, which almost led to an outright nuclear war with the second largest power in the world at that time. And it was done so on the basis of the fact that 
the U.S. saw Cuba as its stomping ground and did not want to see the Soviet Union and Cuba become closer as allies, which is in fact what would happen after the Cuban Missile Crisis ended. So, in effect, John F. Kennedy had a very imperialist vision for Latin America. He believed that liberal interventionism was the way to ultimately uh, subsume Latin America under the banner of U.S. imperialism with devastating consequences, including uh, the untimely killing of Che Guevara by the CIA. And it's hard to know whether John F. Kennedy would go along with the Vietnam War as it occurred. However, he was killed, and Lyndon Johnson was also a Democrat, but a more conservative Democrat. And he ended up escalating uh, the Vietnam War to the extent that it was. And there were vested interests in that vested interest in the oligarchic structure in doing so. So I won't go on much more from here, but what I will say is that U.S. presidents come into leadership under an imperialist system. They come into leadership uh, really needing to serve their imperialist masters in order to, to survive. But also, they end up being benefactors in all of this. Look at how much money, for example, Barack Obama has made for dropping 26,000 bombs on the world in 2016 alone by uh, doing everything and anything that the imperialists were willing to do during his administration. He has been making millions of dollars off of book deals, foundations, and the like because he served the imperialist ruling class how they wanted to be served at that time, at least a large section of it. Look at George W. Bush being revived now, despite invading two countries, uh, one where the United States still is in a permanent occupation in Afghanistan, the war on terror, which was a domestic and a global war on the people. Despite all of those criminal actions, despite the rolling back of civil liberties, despite the millions of people killed, and millions more who have been either injured or terrorized by this by his criminal regime, he's being revived by the media. There was just tw just Twitter, uh, just a tweet recently where his so-called pandemic response is now being lauded as something that U.S. leaders should follow. When <laughs> I don't know, I, I guess they don't remember Katrina in 2005, which was another disaster for Black people, and George W. Bush was at the head of that. In any event, I won't go on too much longer. However, we have to remember that U.S. presidents are individuals, and we tend to, in the United States, be very interested in what individuals do. The United States presidency is the most powerful seat in the world, and it has been for some time. However, that power is largely based on super exploitation. It's largely based on war and it's largely based on serving a capitalist elite, which is shrinking in size, but also becoming more rapidly desperate to gobble up as much as it can, as we see during this pandemic and the multi-trillion dollar bailout, in order to reproduce itself and to maintain its exploitative system uh, for decades to come. It's our job to analyze individual presidents, of course, but also the system that makes U.S. presidents in order to create and come up with a vision for a society that is wholly different 
from the one that we are currently living under. It cannot be that we look at someone like Trump who speaks to anti-war sentiments or Dwight Eisenhower who spoke to anti-war sentiments, FDR who spoke to anti-war sentiments, and not realize that all of these individuals have brought war to another level within their respective periods because no matter what they say, no matter what they end up uh, maybe individually wanting, uh, they ultimately have to answer to a system that not only produces them, but also is the motive force of history, at least in the United States. And so it'll be up to us to look towards other models, to look towards China, to look towards Cuba, to look towards other countries, to look towards historical experience, to look towards revolutionary political thought and revolutionary political action throughout the course of history in order to gain a better understanding of the role of the U.S. president and what we need to do to make sure that they cannot get a lot, they cannot get away with their criminal uh, wars and all of the policies that make them happen and that produce them. So you've been listening to the Left Lens. I hope that answered your question. And I want to just thank the Pomona College students for doing this series with me. And uh, if you wanted more question and answer videos. Please do uh, email me at wakeupriseup1990 at gmail.com. You can also comment on this video. And I would encourage, uh, if you do follow me, Danny Haifa, on Facebook or Twitter, to throw me some ideas about videos that you'd like to see. I am working on a few things. I'm working on a journal article uh, for a uh, Chinese academic institution. I'm also... Uh, working, of course, weekly, writing for Black Agenda Report and other sources. But in this time, I think it's important to produce political education and content that will grow our means of political education. So I'm always open. This is Danny Haifong, and you've listened to The Left Lens once again. Thank you for coming out today. And please stay safe and continue to fight in this struggle for liberation and social justice.